Yeah, so we left our listeners in some suspense. By the way, it's uh, we're back. Uh, it's the same three of us. Abba Jeremy, of course, myself, Brother Israel, and Ben is on my screen. He's down at the bottom part of my screen, so there's Ben down there. Really? Everybody's <laughs> at the top of mine. You're at the yeah. top of yours? Yeah. Yeah, and actually, you're in Omaha, and I'm in Mount Angel. That's where we really are. So. <laughs> That's right. That helps to mention. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, but yeah, so uh, we left our listeners in some suspense as to where we'd be going, but actually we won't be going too far. We're going to keep uh, uh, keep on the path we started and continue with our fourth master theme, anamnesis, epiclesis, and eschatology. Well, it's good to be back. Listen, I wanted to tell you guys, I meant to tell you last time, that I finished the manuscript for my book and sent it in to Liturgical Press. Woo-hoo! And there's my book on resurrection. I told you to pray me through to the end of it. And uh, the, 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 the title is set. Listen to this title. Awesome Glory. Mm. And then the subtitle is Resurrection in Scripture, Liturgy, and Theology. Now, think about that subtitle, because that is the way I'm teaching you guys how to do theology. Uh, First of all, scripture. Scripture is the soul of theology. But you can't have theology just so the Bible read. Well, okay, figure out what that book means. No, it's, uh, it's it's the scripture as it is proclaimed in the liturgical assembly, where it becomes a living word. So scripture... A resurrection in scripture, liturgy, and because of what that is, what what the scripture becomes inside the liturgical context, that's theology. So resurrection in scripture, liturgy, and theology. Yikes. Yeah. And what what I do in the book is I deal with all all the key passages from scripture on resurrection, Mm -hmm. but I deal with them not the way you might go, okay, what's Matthew say about it? What's Mark say about it? What's Luke say about it? Oh, you know, I'm going like that. No. Where is each of these things placed inside the liturgy? And so uh, I start with the Triduum, and we move through all the scriptures of the Triduum, Hmm. all those three liturgies, and then, then the Easter, and then the Easter octave, and then... Then the 50 days of the Easter season. So mm-hmm. we go through all the way through the Sundays of Easter, Ascension, and Pentecost. And Pentecost wow. is the end of the book. So anyway, I'm really excited about it. I'm glad it's done. Yeah, Father, I'm not familiar with like the, I don't know, the book business, uh, but you said it's with the publisher. How long between that and when it is out on the press and ready for? Yeah, it, it, probably at least uh, six months. Okay. Yeah. Oh, good. So we, uh, we're looking at a... Supposedly the beginning of Lent. That's the hope. Ah, perfect. So for all our listeners who are already looking for a Lenten book to read, uh, keep an eye out for Abba Jeremy's book on the resurrection. Yikes. Awesome glory. Awesome glory. All right. Well, <laughs> that, that phrase, that, that's, a, that's, a, that's a phrase that you find in the exultant. Got it. Got it. Yeah. Okay. okay, well, we will be keeping our, uh, all of you posted uh, when this, as, uh, as this book gets published, and so stay tuned for that, too. Yeah. And, and Father, just the way you were, you, know, you were parsing that subtitle of your book uh, in Scripture, liturgy, and in theology, it kind of sounds like our conversation from 
the last episode uh, was very much the path we took. We looked at key texts in the liturgy, and then at some point you said, well, I want to answer you liturgically. Uh, yeah. And, uh, yeah. yeah, no, so, uh, yeah, it was very much the way we've been operating on this podcast. It's exciting. That's theology at the Eucharistic table. Amen. Okay, you guys have some more questions, uh, or what? Because there's lots to say about these things. Yeah. Ben, did you want to start us off? Sure. Um, as we were kind of in the second half there of the last uh, meeting, you, you brought us from speaking about the Eucharistic liturgy, um, as I guess from only speaking about the Eucharistic liturgy to speaking about the liturgy of the sacrament of baptism. And so I was wondering kind of in perhaps more of a, a context where, where we have all the sacraments and all the sacramental liturgies. I, I assume that we have the anamnesis, epiclesis and eschatology working in each and every one of those particular liturgies. Yeah. And we can't, obviously go into every single one, but um, maybe do you, do you have a little bit of a, um, a, li- a little bit to say maybe about how there is perhaps a wisdom behind how the church's sacraments today are, um, are a particular instance for us to tap into different aspects of of this master theme we're working on right now yeah for sure you can you can do what we're doing with anamnesis and epiclesis and eschatology with each of the seven sacraments and uh in fact corbon does that in his book as well and he especially you know uh wants to do that with epiclesis he develops the epiclesis in in each of the seven sacraments Mm. but uh as theologians and as future priests uh, you guys should get in the habit of noticing just in the liturgical shape of the celebration of every sacrament uh, notice when the particular moment in the liturgy is doing anamnesis and uh, notice also then where, where the epiclesis comes in. And you have that in, in big moments in the, the major sacramental celebrations. Uh, but all of the sacraments uh, remember Jesus' death and resurrection. All of the sacraments are about that. Uh, and, and in all of them, the action of the Holy Spirit is to, as it were, to deliver the power of Jesus's death and resurrection here and now to the situation in life that this sacrament is dealing with. In baptism, uh, it is in fact uh, the, the introduction into the Christian life so that we, it's not a sacrament we celebrate over and over again for the same person. It's only celebrated once because that, that introduces one uh, together with the sacrament of confirmation, which is not repeated either. Uh, but all of those are, are, are 
liturgical splicings into for the person that's being baptized and confirmed. That's what brings it to the present of that past event of Jesus' death and resurrection becomes the definition here and now of that person's uh, of that person's new life in Christ. Uh, but you can go on from there to you know the. Scholastic theology did this in a beautiful way, and we still do this uh, in in the Catholic system, is we relate all the sacraments to Eucharist. Mm -hmm. Uh, You could say baptism and confirmation are so that we can celebrate regularly the Eucharist. Uh, Mm -hmm. Just to make the point, I like to say it ordains you as a human being and makes you capable of the of the of the to offer the Eucharistic sacrifice and to have communion in it, uh, and that's why you know you just don't bring people straight to Eucharist. Uh, sure, it, it, that's it, you're not ordained for this kind of worship until you're baptized mm-hmm. and confirmed. So, uh, but the other sacraments, for example, holy orders, uh, holy orders is ordered toward uh, the celebration of these other sacraments, above all for the presiding at Eucharist. Uh, um, Then you have sacraments that are, they're called the sacraments of healing because in our existence, in fact, uh, we have difficulty either with sin or with sickness. Uh, But both of these Uh, Inside both of these, inside the reality of sin, the sacrament of reconciliation, and inside the reality of physical sickness and death, Christ's death and resurrection is the story that is going to solve this question. Mm. The question of my sin or the question of my sickness and dying. And so we we remember and the Holy Spirit, uh, the Holy Spirit is uh, active. Doing what? Forming in the same way that he formed uh, a body for the divine word in the womb of the Virgin Mary, in the same way that he formed all the events of the Old Testament to be types of Christ. He forms my sin into forgiveness and restores me to the Eucharist. Or here I am dying, here I am very sick, and through the sacrament of anointing of the sick, he, the Holy Spirit, takes by his action my sickness and my dying and inserts it into the mystery of Christ, makes it a type of Christ. Yeah. Uh, does the same with marriage, which marriage, uh, matrimony, is a sacrament of Christ, the bridegroom giving his life for his bride. The church, when a man marries a woman and a woman marries a man, that ultimate reality for Christian men and women who marry one another is that reality, is that Christ's reality. And their children are the fruit of that Christ love. Uh, and the Spirit is all over that. Sure. Making natural human love a sacrament of Christ's death and resurrection. 
Oh, it's wonderful. I mean, this. So, yeah, every you can go over all the segments with this. Well, thank what you. Came, yeah. Okay, what came out really, uh, you know, it, it just hit me in a way it never had before. Um, you, we, we were speaking in the last in the last episode about the images, you know, the same reality being conveyed in different images. Um, I was thinking, of course, you know, the sacrament of, of, of reconciliation, confession, what's the image there? Sorrow for sin. Well, we look at the cross, you know, we look at the passion, death, and resurrection. There, There's sorrow for sin there. Um, when we look at the sacrament of the anointing of the sick, um, what's the image there? A person in sickness and dying. What do, when we look at the, you know, the Paschal mystery at the passion, death, and resurrection, what do we see? We see die. We see death. We see illness. We see the end of life. Um, yeah. So those images are there, um, transformed now, not just into this person being sorry for their sins, but Christ taking on that sorrow for sin and making it fruitful yeah 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 you know to me there's this this huge mystery is taking place uh, with sin and and with the sacrament of penance because uh you know what what you begin with in that sacrament is sin itself that's what you know it's like it's the stuff of the sacrament. It's kind of weird to put it that way because, you know, like we say, you uh, you don't have this sacrament. You don't have a Eucharist without the stuff, without bread and wine and the assembly. You don't have baptism without the stuff. Got to have water, you know? Yeah. Uh, well, the, 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 the shocking thing of this sacrament is the stuff of the sacrament is in some way sin. Mm. And, and this is this, so this is a unique way of remembering the death of Jesus. Uh, because let's not forget the cross is ugly and bad, not good at all. Mm. What is that? It's the revelation, first of all, of how ugly and terrible sin is. But at the same time that Jesus' cross is that, it's his willing acceptance of the cross, which is him then and there turning our sin into something that says his love. This is amazing to me. So that uh, my sin provokes his even more excessive love, which is the cross of Christ and his resurrection. So, you know, this is, this is the way Paul is talking about sin in uh, chapter 7, the, the letter to the Romans. He said, well, what shall I say then? Sin the more so that grace may abound? No, of course not. You know, but it's like saying, yeah, bring it on, bring sin on. There's more <laughs> mercy, the more this. Yeah. Yeah. No, don't go there, he's saying. But, but what he is saying is, that that God's mercy, not as a vague, abstract attribute of God, mm-hmm. but in the death of Jesus, God's mercy will always trump my sin. 
Grace, where sin abounds, grace abounds the more. That's, and we're off on another sacrament now, but that, that's, this is just so beautiful, really. And if people knew that better, they'd perhaps be more anxious to celebrate this sacrament. Mm. And, you know, I just, I wonder what you would say about this, but it, as you were explaining that, you know, the stuff of the sacrament is sin, I remembered that verse from, I think it's, I think it's in St. Paul. And it's kind of a, a difficult verse because Paul says that Christ became sin for us. And what would otherwise be a really, I don't know, I think like a very, very troubling passage makes a lot of sense in the context of the sacrament of reconciliation. I have to, I'd have to think a little bit more about that, but yeah, when we, go to the sacrament of reconciliation and we see that we see that ugliness right there yeah listen to the words of absolution and you will you will hear very precisely anamnesis and epiclesis god the father of mercies through the death and resurrection of his son there it is okay Paschal ministry remembered through the death and resurrection of his son has reconciled the world to himself and sent the Holy Spirit among us for the forgiveness of sins. Hold still, everybody. Here comes the epiclesis. <laughs> sent the Holy Spirit among us for the forgiveness of sins. By the ministry of the church, may God grant you pardon and peace. And I absolve you of your sins in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. I, who's the I? It's Christ who alone can absolve sin, working through the priest, and he can do it because right now we remembered that the world is reconciled through the death and resurrection of Christ. That's Onamnesis. And the power of the Holy Spirit is poured out here and now. That's it. It's the Holy Spirit poured out on the penitent which totally cleanses the penitent from the sin mm. and restores that penitent. And, and the Holy Spirit is doing there to that person what the Spirit did to that person in baptism and confirmation, mm -hmm. totally restoring them and setting them up again so that they can celebrate Eucharist purely and properly, which is the ultimate finish of the celebration of the sacrament of penance is to get you back to Eucharist the way you ought to be there. Right. Reconciliation. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, that was a good question, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Good deal. Did you have a follow-up, Ben? You know, I had, I thought of something while Father Abbott was talking mm -hmm. and I'm hoping it's coming to my mind, but it's, it's not. Okay. <laughs> Go ahead, brother. No worries. Yeah. I hope this doesn't take us terribly far. Um, so uh, in the last episode when I'd asked, Father, you know, when we, when we use these, we want to talk about time and we use these words, anamnesis, epiclesis, eschatology, and I, I'd asked, would it be fair to say that we use these words because there has occurred something in history that has fundamentally reoriented history. I don't know if you remember uh, mm -hmm. me asking that. Yeah. Um, 
and you and you gave your feedback on that. And you know, the reason I put it that way is because there's there's a passage in scripture that's always sort of kind of thrown that in my face. And you know, I you know say I was in when I was in the college seminary, I wouldn't have attached the words anamnesis, epiclesis, and eschatology to that verse. Um, but after taking your class. I think already from like the first time around, even before we began the podcast, um, this passage came back with these words. And so I wanted to bring it up and just see what, uh, what you would, would have to say in relation to this master theme and this verse. It's, it's chapter 13 of Revelation. It's verse 8. And uh, I wonder if you know where I'm going with this already, but no, I don't. Sometimes okay. I recognize biblical passages by citation, okay. but I don't recognize that one. I okay. better. This is, this, is, this is perfect for our listeners, by the way. Both uh, the Abbot and Ben began to pull out their Bibles at the same time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there we are. We should have them out earlier, but That's we got them memorized. So, um, <laughs> so uh, I'll, I'll read to you the, um, so it's Revelation, verse 8. Uh-huh. Uh, Revelation chapter 13, verse 8. You'll, you'll find different, um, there's this phrase that gets parsed a little bit different depending on where you're reading it. Um, so I'll read the Dewey Reams, uh, which is followed in the, uh, in the King James Bible as well. Uh-huh. And, all, uh, and all who dwell upon the earth adored him, referring to Christ, whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb, which was slain from the beginning of the world. Ah, the lamb slain from the beginning of the world. Yeah. So maybe you can kind of begin to see why calling Christ the lamb who was slain from the beginning of the world would automatically make me think of something has happened in time that has fundamentally reoriented time in such a way that we can talk about this person who wasn't, you know, didn't, from the foundation of the world, didn't have a body to suffer in. And yet now that he has suffered in this body, has become the Lamb of God, is now slain from the foundation of the world. Yeah, yeah. If that made any sense. Well, yeah, that's a, that's a very mysterious verse. And uh, I've pondered on it before, and I'm, I'm sure I've read common commentaries on it, but I don't remember who. Um but in any case, I do have one thought about it, at least. And, you know, to speak of the Lamb as slain from the beginning of the world, for me, uh, we know that in our founding narrative in Jesus, naming him Lamb of God, slain on the cross under Pontius Pilate, mm-hmm. that's the Lamb slain at a particular point in human history. And I think what I get from this verse, I wouldn't dare to say that it is uh, the, the sacred author's meaning, but I don't think it could, could uh, this, the following thought could contradict it. I think what you have here is that in being the lamb, in Jesus, the, the eternal son coming to us as a lamb slain under Pontius Pilate, what he shows himself to be then is what God is from all eternity, which is to say somehow in the very nature of God, 
there is sacrifice. In the very nature of God, there is kenosis. In the very nature of God, there is God's being for. Uh, so that's what that verse means to me. That's pretty mystical and deep, I think. That's not my own thought. But you see, I don't think we, I probably Lafont was leading me there with his deep speculations somewhere or other. Because he thinks like that, I know, and I learned to think that way from him. Guilain Lafont, but my French Benedictine mentor. Mm-hmm. And he, he, oh yeah, he, he said, you know, there's somehow in which the word sacrifice, that's what he was saying, the word sacrifice describes God's own nature within himself. The eternal generation of the son is sacrificial. The father pours himself out toward the son. Mm. The son pours himself out in love toward the father. That's sacrificial. But the son pours himself out in love coming into the world. All that's kenosis. And that's the trajectory of a lamb being slain. So that on the cross, when the lamb is slain in time, God is not not being God. God is being God Mm. on the cross. More than ever is he God on the cross. Because from all eternity, he is the lamb slain. And by the same token, you see in later visions of the book of Revelation, you see... Uh, on the throne of God, a lamb standing as those, a lamb as those slain, but standing. And we've already talked about this. I don't remember when, but we talked about, you know, from what the visions of Revelation show us is that when you look into heaven at the end of time and the consummation of the whole world, what, what you see there. Is the, is, is the crucified on the throne of God. Yeah. But now this, this mysterious verse has it, oh yeah, well that's the way it was in some mysterious sense, even before the creation of the world, the sin and the redemption. So that's a good one, Brother Israel, that you got onto that verse. But you guys can look for answers to that one for the rest of your theological <laughs> lives because that's uh, oh goodness yeah you know I have been going on with this verse for like I mentioned since my uh, since my college days in the seminary and that hasn't been that long ago so I I'm starting to believe you when you say <laughs> yeah the rest of my theological career yeah yeah you know just you mentioned when we see I'm thinking of that other revelation. Of the vision of Christ um, coming as King of King and Lord of Lords uh, is the way He's described. But when they're describing, when you know, when John's describing this glorious vision, he adds the detail that his cloak had been sprinkled in blood. Yeah. So even in this moment of just total glorification, the mysterious name that no one can pronounce, and then he tells you what it is right away. Um, the detail. His cloak had been sprinkled with blood. Yeah. Or dipped in blood, I think you're Dipped in blood, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Oh, my marvelous stuff. Yeah, so there's something 
about what it means to be God to have always been this sacrifice or this, this self-giving. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. See that word is so, uh, that word kenosis, you know, in the Greek emptying, self-emptying. That's a very, that's just an absolutely important mm-hmm. uh, theological word. You know, uh, we've spoken about it a lot, probably already on the podcast, I know in class, but always we think of uh, Philippians chapter two. Um, I don't know if I've ever showed you this detail, you know, that it's the, it's considered uh, not uh, original to Paul, but it probably a hymn that he uses in the letter that predates him because he says it as if it were familiar to them. But, you know, it's usually translated, though he was in the form of God, uh, he did not cling to equality with God, mm-hmm. but emptied himself. You guys know the verse I'm talking about. Yeah. Philippians 2 begins at verse 5. But, you know, we always translate that though he, although he was in the form of God, he did not cling to equality with God. But actually the Greek does not have the word although. Uh, uh, it, what it has is simply being in the form of God. <laughs> he did not cling to his equality with God, but rather emptied himself. And mm. I think that we should not be putting that word though in there because it slants the interpretation mm. to, well, you wouldn't expect this from God. Right. Well, God expects it from himself because God doesn't surprise himself with what he does. You know? <laughs> and so he, God is in the form of God. And because he's in the form of God, he doesn't cling to it but empties himself, being God. Wow. So let us change all translations. I mean, from, but uh, in every language it's translated that way. I, I once checked it out. I, I don't know why that's so. So, <laughs> so, Father, does Ben have your permission the next time that hymn comes up in the Roman office to just use the word being instead of though? <laughs> uh, yeah, I think he, I think we all should. Yeah, it's a, it's a revolution. <laughs> No, wow. Yeah, you know, that, that makes, yeah, that makes such a big difference to the way you hear that verse, the way yeah. you understand that. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, the whole phrase, I mean, the whole hymn follows from that. Being in the form of God, of course, he did not deem equality with God, something to be grasped at, but rather emptied himself. Mm. And of course, you know, we, we look at the <coughs> earthly ministry of Christ as it's told by the evangelists and we have this constant deferring to the Father in Christ. He's constantly being in the form of God, not clinging to that even in his ministry. Yeah. He's always saying the Father is greater than I, only the Father knows. Yeah. Um, I've, you know, I've come that you might know the Father. Um, but, and you could also say that the form of God is the eternal generation of the Son. Mm. God the Father, being God the Father, generated the Son, which is mm. to say, gave all his divinity to the Son. That's God for you. Yeah, it's like the, uh, if, you, if you have being in the form of God, that's, that's the Christian revelation of god whereas if you have though he was in the form of god it's almost that's the approach to the pagan 
understanding of God. Yeah. So the pagan understanding is like, well, why would he empty himself? That makes no sense. Yeah. But right. it's like in our approach to the, to the pagan understanding of a God, we bring in the word though. Yeah. But once we're in this Christian understanding of God, we're almost getting dragged back to the pagan understanding. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, that's I, that's right, Ben. God, let's hope where the, some scripture scholar doesn't freak out at what I'm saying that I've just made a grammatical error here and haven't <laughs> understood how participles work in the Greek. But in, uh, you guys, you know, if you get your Greek out and, and try to go through it and and find out, uh, I I don't find many commentaries on it. I found I didn't work this out on my own. I read it somewhere once, and I thought, well, for heaven's sakes, why doesn't everybody say this? But in uh, any case, uh, it's a good thought whether I'm right about the grammar or not. <laughs> sure. <laughs> wow. Oh, goodness. And, well, I, yeah, you can. I can see why that ties in. That would tie in perfectly with that passage in Revelation that describes the lamb as the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Yeah, it would it would be perfectly in line with being in the form of God. Yeah, given that He was, that He is, that He will forever be the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Yeah, He couldn't be that you know Lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world if He was trying to hold on to being God. It's like no, don't slay me. I'm yeah. I'm God. Yeah, yeah, that's what He is from His eternal generation forward. You know. Nice. And the spirit, of course, is there. This is why the spirit can do what the spirit does in the in the economy, is because the spirit is the knowledge of the Father and the Son from all eternity. He is the love of the Father and the Son from all eternity. And so the Father being in the form of God gave his only Son to the world, that's the form of God, that's God being God for you. Then the son goes, okay, I'll go, I'll empty myself, I'm God. And then the spirit is there going, okay, I'll make this work in limited, finite vessel of one human being acting in history. I'll put the whole father-son divine mystery in a limited form. I'll even do that. I'll even do that uh, with sin and death, and I'll still be God being God there. Anyhow, listen, Brother Israel, I see the little flash saying we're almost out of time, and I'm almost out of time too because I'm supposed to be somewhere else. Correct, Father, you're taking off. Uh, (laughs) Oh, goodness, this is, wow, yeah. It's so nice to be with you guys again. I miss you both, and... uh, Ben, you got one more week left in that program at Omaha. Yep, I'll make the drive back home to Fairbanks the end of that. So, oh my goodness, I guess every week of silent retreat there in the car. <laughs> you said you guys were reading Thorbone's book there in the program. Uh, did the guys from other seminaries know it? I know the Mount Angel guys would have known it, but did the other guys know that book too? Do other seminaries use that book? I think there might be one or two other seminaries that do. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's good. Well, Father, Father, thank you so much for everything you've shared with us. I'm glad we came back to this uh, 
we sort of came back to the master theme, but then we also went everywhere and from it. So that's that's okay. Much. <laughs> I'm calling that summertime theology. That, that's really, we, we we don't have to get anything done in the summer. We just can ease back and talk about God. Right. It's I like just, it. The sun really does that to you. Yeah. Okay, Father, you mentioned you have to go. Thank you so much. Okay, thank you, guys. Bless you both. Bye, Ben. Bye, brother. Thank you, Father Abbott. Ben, goodbye. Bye, brother. Thank you for listening, and be sure to subscribe to our newsletter, where you will receive notices about new episodes, including occasional bonus content, updates from the seminarians, Images with quotes from Abba Jeremy that you can share on social media. And also our new segment called Words from the Fathers, where we share a bit of wisdom from one of the church fathers, usually connected to the episode. You can sign up by visiting our website, www.theologyatmountangel.com, theologyatmtangel.com. <laughs>